0: You are listening to the Mill Sunday School podcast. If you would uh, turn to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter twelve, the book of Hebrews, chapter twelve, verse eighteen. This is one of the coolest images I think in the entire Bible. It's an analogy. You know what that means? It's like an image. Of spiritual things, and it's an image, an allegory of two mountains: one mountain in the Old Testament, and one mountain that's part of the New Covenant, the New Heaven and the New Earth. And so, I'm going to read this passage, uh, Hebrews 12, verse 18, and it's, it's going to talk about a mountain, and then it's going to say, and then it's going to talk about another mountain. The first mountain says, "This you have not." Everybody says, "Say not, not." not. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm. Sounds scary, right? To a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. This is it. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to kill. So there's this mountain. It's on fire, gloom, and storm. And if an animal just touches it, the animal has to be killed. Sounds like a bad sight, don't you think? In fact, it even says, verse 21, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. And we all know Moses is a cool guy. He's like God's anointed, literally. And he was trembling with fear because of this mountain. But the, the 18 says, you've not come to this mountain, but you have come, it says, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. To the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the for- firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all men. To the Spirit, spirits of righteous men made perfect. To Jesus the mediator of the new covenant. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. This new covenant with Jesus Christ. And to the sprinkling of blood that speaks better than the word of of the blood of Abel. Let's pray. God, we just praise you right now. We thank you for this image of two mountains. We thank you for the image in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the covenant that you've given us now through Jesus Christ. And God, today as we look at your book of the Bible called the Book of Hebrews, God, I ask you to open our minds, open our hearts, that we might receive more of you, that we might understand you more. Just by studying your word. And we just thank you and praise you for that, God. And everybody screamed, Amen. Amen. All right, if you're new to Mill Sunday School, I just want to officially welcome you in here. I joke around that we are the nerds of the mill. Anybody with me? We like going deeper into the things of God. We like learning about eternal truths. Because a lot of things are going to pass away. You know that all the stuff you have, like your sweet car and uh, your sweet iPod, you're not going to be able to take that to heaven. But eternal knowledge and truth, you know that that's literally eternal. You're going to be able to take that to heaven with you. So what you're learning in here is not just cool stuff about, I don't know, what you could look up on the internet. This is eternal truth. We're looking at the Bible and it will not pass away. And so the best place to be on a Sunday morning? You're right, you're here. You are in the, if you're wondering, what else could I be doing? No, you're here. This is the best place to be. The eggs and the bacon proves it. The eternal truth that you're about to learn will prove it even more than the bacon and the eggs. And uh, and all this month, we are going to look at the book of Hebrews. I've just decided this week that the book of Hebrews is my favorite book of the Bible. Anybody else like Hebrews, the book of Hebrews? I love Hebrews, too. It's so cool. And, and so we're going to be looking at Hebrews. In fact, the very first Bible study that I ever taught, when I was in college, there was a church that I was going to. We really didn't have a college group. And so I, um, having no leadership, really, at that time, experience or biblical training or any of that, decided, let's start a small group. And so I got a buddy of mine to lead worship. And then we would just, all I, all I really knew how to do was to We'd, we'd sit around this table, there's like 10, 15 of us, and we'd open up to a book, we'd read a little bit, and then we'd talk about it. That's what the Bible study was. But you know what? God used that, and it was so cool. And the first book that we chose to do, the first book that I ever taught on, was the book of Hebrews. All we did was we sat down, we started reading some of it, and then we start talking about it. And I started realizing, as the weeks passed that the small group was, I mean the Bible study was cool but it could be a lot better. If I went ahead and spent some time during the week studying the book of Hebrews with my sweet commentaries and study Bibles and concordances and just doing research, then the Bible study would be wicked cool. People would learn a lot more because then I could say, oh this passage is similar to this other passage, let's look at that and so that's when I became a nerd through the book of Hebrews, and God used that, and through that experience, I was in college wanting to be a high school biology teacher, and through that experience of leading that small group, teaching the book of Hebrews, I decided, man, I want to teach the Bible, and so I get to do what I've always dreamed of doing. Isn't that cool? So, so if you're wondering, what's Joe, what's Joe going to do when he, when he grows up? I'm doing it. If I'm an old man at like 95, I'm going to be right here eating the bacon and eggs, teaching you guys different books. Won't that be fun? Yeah. <laughs> so that's what, uh, that's what we're, we're doing in here all this month. The book of Hebrews, um, I feel like telling you another story. You want another story? Yeah. The very first sermon that I ever preached, um, I was a youth pastor in this little church in L.A., when I was working on my master's degree. And uh, they asked me to preach on a Sunday morning, which was a really big deal because it was like really adults, prim and proper. It was like this Presbyterian church. And uh, so the the main pastor asked me to preach on a Sunday morning. He was like, don't mess up, make it a good one. (laughs) So I chose a lesson that that I think went off really great and the pastor loved it. It was a message called Jesus Sat Down. And what it was about was about, the book of Hebrews talks about how High priests in the Old Testament make sacrifices after sacrifices, and it's a gruesome thought to think that people would bring, if you sinned, you would bring your cattle or a sheep or a goat or a bird to the high priest, and the high priest would kill it, cut it in half, and then smear blood on the altar. And that's how your sins in the Old Testament and the Old Promise were atoned for. And so day after day, these same high priests would make these same sacrifices. I mean, talk about like a bad job I mean like world's what's that show that the ugliest jobs dirty jobs I mean I mean and let's yeah it's just I mean think about it for a second you're killing animals and smearing blood on stuff for the atonement of sins but then Jesus came sacrificed himself on the cross and then it said that he sat down at the right hand he didn't have to continue making a sacrifice he sat down making the completion of the whole Old Testament saying that Jesus Is the one, the true, the only sacrifice, the great lamb of all lambs that was sacrificed and then he sat down. So that was my first message ever. So the book of Hebrews is my friend. I really like the book of Hebrews. So let's look at some cool things. In your notes, if you're taking notes, cool things in the book of Hebrews is point one. Here's some cool things that we're going to talk about. Um, Number one, we're going to talk about how the book of Hebrews is the great bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If somebody ever asks you, why should I even read the Old Testament? It's, it's so old. We don't do all the things in the Old Testament, like killing animals for sacrifices, like uh, stoning people when they curse their mom or dad. <laughs> we don't do a lot of things that are in the Old Testament. Why even read that? Well, if you read the book of Hebrews, you will understand why the Old Testament is important and how the New Testament with Jesus Christ completed or fulfilled all of the Old Testament. Another cool thing that we're going to talk about, number two, Melchizedek have you ever heard of Melchizedek it's a weird name if I ever have kids I, I will ask my wife if we can name the boy Melchizedek she's saying no never mind <laughs> just kidding just kidding there's this really weird story in Genesis and it's, it's it's just that I mean I say a lot of things are weird but this is legitimately weird where a guy a guy named Melchizedek um, comes to Abraham there's no history about the dude it just says he's king of Salem and, he, and he's a priest of the God Most High. And if you're reading the Genesis uh, and you get up to chapter 14 where the story is, the guy just comes out of nowhere. I mean, he's a priest of God himself. But, but like he didn't know about the Bible. He didn't know about, uh, the Bible wasn't even written then. I mean, he just, God must have just spoke to this dude. And then so Abraham and him, Abraham gives him a tenth of his money. And it's just this weird little passage. But the book of Hebrews talks about Melchizedek eight times. They say that Jesus is in the line of Melchizedek. And so we'll talk about all that. That's just a cool thing to look forward to. Number three, are you saved by works or are you saved by faith? It's a really interesting phenomenon. But did you know that the book of Hebrews and the book of James are right next to each other? The book of Hebrews says that you're saved by faith alone. And then it says, it uses Abraham as the example that you're saved by faith alone. And then the next book, it says... In the book of James, it says, You foolish man. This is James 2.20. I'm just going to read it really quick. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our Abra- our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. So James says that you're saved by faith and works, and then he uses the same dude to prove his point. Everybody say, what the? It's kind of weird. It seems like a contradiction. And so a cool thing to look forward to this month is we're going to talk about that interchange. Are you saved by faith? Are you saved by faith and some, somehow your works fall into your faith? We're going to talk about all that. Does this whet your appetite? Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm hungry. <laughs> uh, what else are we going to talk about? Oh, this one, this is the last one. Number four, we're going to talk about the question. Have you ever wondered this? Can you lose your salvation? Can you lose your salvation? Is it possible to lose your salvation? Uh, The book of Hebrews chapter 10 says, a verse uh, 26 says, if we deliberately keep sinning after we've received the knowledge of truth, if we deliberately sin after we've received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Is this passage talking about losing your salvation is it possible is it not possible we'll talk about all that I hope to arise questions inside of you that are deep and that are burning and that you'll just want to know more about the truth of God so if you're thinking that I'm just bringing up questions and not answering them that's exactly what I'm doing I'm trying to hook you. I'm trying to make you addicted to the Mill Sunday School so that you will come back and spend your Sunday mornings with me. Um, let's look at the book of Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews one one. Hebrews chapter one verse one. Now, usually, a book uh, that's in the New Testament will begin with um, will begin with like if it's a if it's a book written by Paul, for instance. It just for fun. Um, you're in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, but flip over um, to Philemon, that's the book previous. It says, uh, it begins Philemon 1.1, 1, 1, says Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, his, uh, our dear friend, fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, and so and so. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 doesn't start off with the address. So a lot of people think that maybe Paul did not write the book of Hebrews. Have you heard of that before? Haven't you ever wondered who wrote the book of Hebrews? Turn to your neighbor and say, I don't. who wrote it? I don't know. Who wrote I don't know. That's a good question. It's, it starts off with, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets at many times and in various ways. There's no address. And it's possible, some scholars think, um, that it's possible that the address part got ripped off for some reason. I mean, maybe you're driving down the road, somebody's telling you a phone number, and you start writing the phone number down, you rip it off, you're like, oh, where's the address to the book of Hebrews? So someone ripped it off because they were writing down a phone number. I mean, for whatever, I guess there was no phones back then, huh? So that couldn't be true. But I mean, it could have, I mean, literally a piece of paper that's 2,000 years old is just, it's not even a piece of paper anymore, it's just kind of dust, right? So it's possible for whatever reason, and I joked about the phone thing, but it's possible that that page, or that little piece got ripped off or not added, it's possible. It's also possible um, that uh, let me put it this way: it had to have been someone in the posse of Paul and Timothy, in the in the gang of Paul and Timothy. Here's why: turn. Uh, we're we're kind of flipping around a lot, but it's fun. I know it is. Um, Hebrews thirteen, the very last chapter, Hebrews thirteen, verse twenty-three. Is it okay for flipping around a little bit? I know. I know you. Yeah, we like flipping. Um, (laughs) Hebrews 13, verse 23. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. So whoever this is, he knows about Timothy. He's in the posse of Timothy, and Timothy's in the posse with Paul. So it could be that Paul wrote this book and the address part got ripped off. Other scholars like to uh, think that it could have been a dude named Barnabas. A Jew, a close friend of Paul. In the book of Acts, you could read about him. Um, Paul and Barnabas go to Antioch. That's, I mean, Barnabas is cool too, right? He's just as cool. I mean, we can't give all credit to Paul. He wrote like the entire New Testament. You know, and what's, what's one more book? Let's give somebody else the credit, right? And What about Barnabas? What about Apollos? Here, this is the third guy. Apollos could have been the writer. Uh, Luke says in the book of Acts that he was a learned man and he associated with Paul in the Corinthian church So, and he was also a Jew. Barnabas was also a Jew. Those three people are usually considered the people, the peeps that could have written the book of Hebrews because they were in the posse with Timothy. Does that make sense? And the reason why I'm talking about this is because I believe it's important to do the big words called exegesis and hermeneutics. You know what those big words mean? Those words mean that you can't just open up the Bible and say uh, read this. Okay, I'm going to do this today and it says something weird. And You're like, oh, that's kind of weird. I don't know if I want to do that. What we have to do as Christians is we have to do the exegesis and hermeneutics. We have to kind of be in th- a nerd and we have to say, okay, who, if we find an interesting passage or a weird passage, we have to say, who wrote this? Who, who do they write it to? What was the cultural, social phenomenon that, that, as to why someone would write this? That's, that's what hermeneutics and exegesis is all about. They're big words for doing your homework. That's all it means. Do your homework. Do the exegesis and hermeneutics. So we think that Paul, Barnabas, or Apollos was a possible author. And then whoever else was in the posse also could have written it. Those are just our three best guesses. So who is this book to? Trick question. It's written to the Hebrews. <laughs> But who are the Hebrews? Do you know who the Hebrews are? They're the Jews. They're the Israelites. They are the Hebrews. Three words? Synonyms? Homonyms? What is that? Synonyms. Yeah, homonyms. It just sounded like... Yeah, they're synonyms. Jews, they're called Jews because they come from the area of the world called Judea. Uh, they're called Israelites as well because the country today is called Israel. And they're called uh, Hebrews because what language do they speak and write? They, they write Hebrew. So three names, all the same, all the same uh, person, race. Here's a good question for you. It's a question that I had when I was little about maybe fifth grade or fourth grade. I thought I was a really smart kid. Maybe I was. I went to Sunday school. By the way, I, I had perfect attendance for six years in Sunday school. I'm not kidding around. I went every single Sunday. My mom and dad uh, just brought me and then it became like, wow, I'm the best kid in the world. I have six years of perfect attendance. One time I got the chicken pox. Did I go to Sunday school? You're dang right I went to Sunday school. <laughs> I got all those other kids sick, but then I had the record because then they missed. It was, it was genius on my part. <laughs> um, okay, here I had this question. When I was like in fourth or fifth grade, I said, um, uh, G- we believe in Jesus, right? And the teacher said, yeah, we believe in Jesus. And I said, what religion was Jesus? And, and and the teacher said, oh, he was Jewish. And then I didn't really say anything, but I thought to myself, I'm gonna be smart. If we worship Jesus and Jesus is of the religion, uh, he's Jewish, then why aren't we Jewish? And so in my spare time, I started as a fourth grader, <laughs> I started doing Jewish things. Like I, I, I found out that Jewish people wore the little hat thing and I started wearing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just weird, but do you see the, the, the it's, it's kind of a, and if maybe you've thought the same thing, and you thought, well, yeah, if Jesus was Jewish, why aren't we Jewish? Here's, here's the thinking behind that. Let me explain it very clearly to you. If you're Jewish, it means two things. It could mean two things. One, that you're of the race of a Jew, and so you could be a Jewish person like Adam Sandler, but, uh, or who's a better example? Because he, he sings the Hanukkah song, so he's, he's maybe a good Jew. um. You could be a, a Jewish person, I don't know, like somebody, Seinfeld, he's Jewish, right? But maybe, he's, yeah, he kind of talks about how he's a Jew, too. Uh, you could be Jewish in uh, your race. It's a line, you know, coming from a Jewish person. Or you could be Jewish in religion. So you could convert, even if you're not Jewish in your race, and your blood, you can convert to Judaism. And even if you're a race and your blood, you could be a, a Christian, for instance. And those Christians that are Jewish by blood, are usually called Messianic Jews or completed Jews. Have you heard of that term before? That's just what they're called. Is anybody in here Jewish? Really? That's sweet. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, you know Aaron Stern's like a quarter Jew? That's kind of cool. Whatever. Um, so here, oh, here's, here's what I was talking about. Um, so Jesus was Jewish in his race, But, and he was also, he followed the Old Testament. He believed in the Old Testament. But, are you ready for the kicker? Jesus was God. And so the people that follow Jesus as God become Christians, followers of Christ. And so it's silly to say that, oh, because Jesus was Jewish, we should be Jewish. No, Jesus was God. Let's believe in him and be Christians because we define ourselves by his messianic order, that he is the Christ. And so, there you go. Here's, and so, this book is written, Hebrews is written to the Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrews, um, the Jews. And it begins with, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers, through the prophets, at many times, and in various ways. And I think the author does a great job of beginning right there. Because if you're a Jewish person, at the time around Jesus, uh, we think that this book of Hebrews is written around 60 AD, maybe 30-something years after Jesus had died on the cross, if you were a good Jew, here, let me explain a little bit about what it means to be a good Jew. A boy, a little boy at the time of six years old, if they're Jewish, and and they would start school, and in school, if you're a Jewish boy at six years old in 60 AD, um, you would not learn reading, writing, arithmetic, social studies, math, and science. You would learn the Torah. And you would start memorizing the Torah. You know what the Torah is? The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. It's right here. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This huge chunk of Bible is called the Torah, the teaching. And a good little Jewish boy going to school would start memorizing the Torah. Think about that. I started memorizing the book of Hebrews, you know how many verses I got? I got three. I, I, could say, I could say the first three verses of the book of Hebrews. And now if I was a good little Jewish boy at the age of six and I took a whole week and memorize three verses, they would take me out into the playground and kick me and dump dirt on my head and say, pick up the pace. We need to at least memorize one chapter per week if we're ever gonna memorize the Torah by the time school is done. And for them, school was kind of done when they were 10 years old. So between the ages of six and 10, every little boy, I'm sorry, girls at that ancient culture uh, didn't go to school. This just wasn't a part of their culture, It's just little boys. And so between the ages of six and 10, most boys would memorize the entire Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So as you're thinking, if you've ever tried reading through those books, you're like, oh, this is so boring. I'm bored to death. Think about that little Jewish boy. Not just having to read it, but having to memorize those lists of names and those boring parts of of the Torah. Think about that for just a second. And then you'll be like, oh, life isn't so bad. I just have to read it. I don't have to memorize it like this poor little Jewish boy. And so uh, at the age of 10, uh, most kids, actually some, I'm not sure of the percentage of boys. At the age of 10, that's about fourth grade-ish, little boys would... um, some of them would end their schooling and start learning, taking on their father's business. If their dad was a carpenter, they would learn to be a carpenter. If their dad was a fisherman, they would learn to be a fisherman. But other boys would continue on with their schooling, and they called it Bet Talmud. They would continue their schooling from about fourth grade until they were about 10 years old, till they were about 15 years old. And what would they learn? Would they learn the reading, writing, arithmetic, social studies, math, English? Actually, English, no. They would learn the rest of the entire Hebrew scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then they would start with Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and 2 Samuel, First and 2 Chronicles, 1 and 2 Kings. And they'd go all the way to Micah. That's like this much of the Bible. Memorized. It was, I mean, if you start training your brain, I guess that's just the way it is. If you start training your brain to memorize things as a six-year-old, and that's your whole schooling, then maybe it gets easier along the way. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe there's just some kids that really struggled with memorization. <laughs> just think about the poor kids that had to memorize this much of the scripture. And so when uh, whoever the author was, whether it was Paul, Apollos, or Barnabas, wrote the book of Hebrews, they were writing to people. The average person, the average boy, the average man would have memorized the Torah as a kid. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Hebrews saying that these old ways have ended and a new way has come through Jesus Christ. It's a very important book in our Bible that conti- that's the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And I think he begins in a place that is really cool. He begins with, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, it kind of as I read that, it kind of reminded me by a, of a speech by Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address. Do you know it? Did you memorize it as a four, as a fourth grader like I did? Four score and seven years ago, this Hebrew says in the past. Four score and seven years ago, uh, uh, what does it say? Four score and seven years ago, our oh yeah, our forefathers, uh, something nation, brought forth this continent. Um, I think if, if there was a copyright thing, I think the book of Hebrews could sue Abraham for that speech because he begins, in the past, our forefathers. That's, that's Hebrews opening line, whereas Abraham Lincoln's opening line was four score and seven years ago. That's like four, what's a score, 10, 20, oh yeah. A long time ago, our forefathers. I think the book of Hebrews, whether it was Paul or Barnabas or Apollos, could have sued Abraham Lincoln for copyright infringement. Say, bro. You're starting off your speech the same way I started off my book. You stole my material. I think it's important that the book of Hebrews starts where it does. It gives credit to the Hebrew people. It says, in the past, God did speak to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Verse 2 says, but these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And so it's giving credit to the Jewish people saying, yes, God did speak through our forefathers, through the prophets to our forefathers. It gives them credit. And I think that's a really good place to begin. If you're witnessing to someone, witnessing is just telling someone about the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. If you're trying to explain that, I think a really good place to begin would be to begin with where they're at and compliment them in some way and somehow. Paul, in the book of Acts, does this incredibly well. In Acts chapter 17... He's chilling and he he goes to Athens, Greece, where they're known for philosophies and they're known for all sorts of gods. And he stands up at the meeting of the Areopagus and he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown I am going to proclaim to you. Do you see it? Do you see what Paul does? Paul says... I see that in every way you are religious, even though they're pagans and they're worshiping all kinds of gods. Paul gives them a little credit and says, I see that you're a little religious. I see that you have an altar to an unknown God. Let me proclaim that to you. One time I was legitimately witnessing to a Satanist. I was working construction and the the guy that I was working with was, uh, he, he was kind of Wiccan and kind of a Satanist. And we were talking about religion. And where did I start off with? I started off with complimenting him, complimenting a Satanist. I said, I can see that you are a spiritual being. You are a spiritual person. You see that in this world there is good and that there is evil. I complimented him in his belief, Satanism, because it's where he was. And I said, I see that you are spiritual, that you see this world as spiritual, and I agree with that. And then I had lots of things to say after that, obviously. I said, well... There, there's light and there's dark, there's good and there's evil, but the powers of good on this earth are so much more powerful than the powers of evil. And I talked to him about Jesus, and I talked to him about the power of the one and only and the true God, and we had a good conversation. Instead of just going right for his throat and saying, you're a Satanist? How stupid, how dumb, that's so dumb, why would you be a Satanist? That's, that's idiotic, why would you do that? I, I at least complimented him and said, you know what? I see that you're a spiritual person. That's what Paul said in the book of Acts. He says, I see that you all are religious. I think if we're going to, here's a good example, uh, with, with Mormons, the LDS church. I think a lot of times we go straight to each other's throats. If A Mormon knocks on your door and says, hi, I'm with the Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. You figuratively go right for their neck and say, I don't believe in that stuff. You guys are bad. You guys uh, have lots of wives. You guys do this and do that. That's just silly. Start with where they're at and say, you believe, in part of, you believe that the Bible is true, right? And they'll say, yeah. And that's a good beginning point. I think it's a really cool way to witness to somebody, to take what they believe and just pull some sort of light out of that. I think that's really cool. In fact, there's a mission trip going to uh, Salt Lake City in October. Raise your hand if you're going on that. Talk, oh, wow, there's lots of us. Talk to somebody. Um, they're, they're going in October to witness to the Mormons, to the LDS church, and to say that we could at least begin to have conversations with LDS people about who Jesus is and who we worship as Jesus and how that's a little different than the Mormon faith. So, the book of Hebrews, perfect place to begin. It's almost as if this book is uh, inspired by God Himself because it's it's such a good book. You should laugh because it is, duh, right? In the past, God spoke to our forefathers. He's saying that yes, you Jewish people, yes, you Hebrews, Worship a God that spoke to you, but now he is speaking something new. He is speaking uh, through his son, Jesus Christ. And so here's the question of the day. Actually, there's going to be two, but the question of the day uh, on this page here, it says, are Jews in need of salvation? Are is the Jewish people in need of salvation? And if you're at the mill, who was at the mill two weeks ago when we started the Q&A? and A's, questions and answers. If you weren't there... Uh, what well, everybody in the entire auditorium all 1,000 or so of us got a 3x5 card and we wrote down a question for Aaron Stern and Glenn Packiam was there, the worship leader uh, and he up there had a stack of 1,000 3x5 cards and he went through and answered um, I guess just a couple compared to the 1,000 that were there but one of the questions was one of the questions said something like I- I'm witnessing to a Jewish friend of mine and do you remember this question and Glenn answered it and the question was about um, how do I show her that Jesus is the way I don't remember the exact wording but then Glenn said something a little unusual and I saw people look around like what the is that what and what Glenn said was was that there's some controversy in the Christian world and theology as to whether Jewish people are in need of salvation through Jesus Christ because if they're a good Jew if they believe in the Old Testament They believe in the same God we believe in, Yahweh, and they're being a good Jew. Are they in need of salvation? Think about it for a second. If they're living today, post-Jesus Christ, are they in need of salvation if they're being a good Jewish person? And I had, um, when I was in college, there was this crazy friend of mine. He was a Christian. Actually, he wasn't that crazy. He's probably just as crazy as I was. But he was always into, like, these weird theologies, and he would, just, he would have them for like two weeks or a week and say, oh, guess what? I just found out. There's this theology that says this. <laughs> and then like the next week, he'd say, yeah, I was just kidding about that. Here's this new theology that I got. And they were always just like these random offskirts of Christian theology. He was, he was a good guy. He had his head on straight. He just was into weird things, weird little theologies. And one of his weird little theologies that he had for like a week and a half was uh, that if a Jewish person is, is at all Jewish, meaning like if they just have a drop of Jewish blood in them, if their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was a quarter Jewish, then you know they're like a half, 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 half of a quarter Jewish. Then they're automatically saved. And I was just like, well, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard for, the, for one reason alone, and that even in the Old Testament, there's Jewish people that disobeyed God. There's Jewish people that turned their backs upon God and did not follow him. And it seems pretty clear to me that they did not. Um, have favor with the Lord, and they may not have went to heaven. And so that's just a, th- a silly theory. And after our conversation, he quickly said, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. And it's like, it was just the end of those weird little theologies. But there's people that say, there's Christians that would say that because God's promises are forever, that maybe someone living today could be a Jewish person, believe in the Old Testament, believe in Yahweh, and not have to accept Jesus for their salvation, There is a controversy within Christian theology as to whether Jewish people are saved or not, if they're good Jewish people. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that idea. A few of you, not all of us. Um, So it it might be kind of new. Here's the reason why I don't like it. Well, let me explain it this way. Let me begin with, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Obeying Obeying the law. They, I think they were saved by faith, through their faith in obeying the law. Let me prove it to you. Um, in Second Samuel, excuse me, First Samuel chapter fifteen. Um, you could turn there if you want. I'm just going to paraphrase a big section of the story, and then I'm going to read a verse for you. First uh, Samuel, fifteen. First Samuel fifteen talks about Saul and how Saul was the king over over Israel, king over uh, was he king over Judah? I don't know. That's, that's like a trivia question for you. Um, Saul was the king over the Jews and he was commanded by God to go into this neighboring city and destroy it. These, this neighboring city, the Amalekites, is that what they are? The Amalekites were really bad dudes. And they hated God. And they were just bad. And God wanted to carry out his judgment upon the Amalekites. So he told Saul, bring your troops in there and just wipe them out. They're really bad people. I don't even want to see them anymore. My judgment is that you might destroy them. And So Saul went in and he killed everything, almost everything. He was instructed to kill everything, even the cows. I mean, people against the ethical, people for the ethical treatment of animals would have a heyday with this passage because God told Saul to kill everything. And in those days, the livestock was, was cash. I mean, they didn't have, you know, money like we have in our pocket or credit cards. Cash was the animals, and you bought and sold things according to animals. And so uh, Saul went in, and he he saved some of the cattle for himself. And his justification was, oh, out of all these cattle, I'm going to save some of those best ones and then sacrifice them to God. Did he obey God? No, he did not. God told him clearly, kill everything. Just wipe it out. I do not like the Amalekites. Saul saved some. And then Samuel, the prophet, comes to him and says this. Verse, uh, let's start with uh, verse 22 of First Samuel 15. Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you as king. Do you see it? In the Old Testament, people were not saved by sacrificing animals. They were saved by their obedience and belief and faith in God and that's how they were saved. But we come to this book of Hebrews, we come to this question um, that says, if a Jewish person is still alive today, which there is, there's lots of them, are they saved by being a good Jewish person? I would have to say no. I would have to say no. I mean, God can judge. God judges each person individually, right? And so it's not my area to judge each person individually. But I would say that the whole reason why Jesus Christ came was to complete the law, was to complete it. And that's why the book of Hebrews is written. Because the book of Hebrews says, let me, let me just show you a verse. It's actually the quote of the day on the back. The summation of the book of Hebrews is found in Hebrews 10.9. And this verse says that Jesus, he takes away the first, that he may establish the second. And who said that? The book of Hebrews is that quote. But A.W. Tozer says that the whole summation, if you were to summarize the entire book of Hebrews, you would find Hebrews 10, 9, that he took away, God took away the first so that he could establish the second. That the better way than sacrificing bulls and goats and, and doves is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's the completion of the Old Testament, not just a new religion. It's the whole. The Old Testament is important because it's the it, the, it needs to be completed by Jesus Christ and His sacrifice. And so, um, there's a there's a there's a passage in Romans. I'm not going to turn there, chapter eleven, that says that there's this tree of God's kingdom, and it says that the the tree is the Jews, that the Jews are special anointed people of the Lord. Did you know that in the Old Testament that God had had a favorite group of people, they were called the Jewish people, that he decided to put his spirit upon those people and his his truth would go out from those people. It almost seems, I've had people say, doesn't that seem kind of mean? Doesn't that almost seem a little racist that God would just choose one group of people out of all the people on the earth? And, and I mean, I would hate to call that a racist. I mean, that's just kind of silly to me. But there, there's something about that that just says God is bigger than who we are. God, if we could explain God totally away, if we could say, God is just like this. He's in this little box. This is just how God works. We almost have to say that you have to be wrong about some of that because God does not live in a box. God's too big to understand. And so for some reason, God chose to have the Hebraic people represent him on the earth until the time of Jesus came. And then J- Jesus opened the door for every single one of us to inherit the kingdom of God. That's kind of just how it works. I don't know why it works that way, but that's how God worked it on this earth. And so, and I should say that e- even if even some neighboring tribes could convert to Judaism and become um, believers in the Old Testament, like you had to be Jewish in order to be saved, lots of people came to know God through the Jewish people that God had on the earth. So I say all that to say, um, to, I guess, to ask a question, because it kind of seems like. God changed his mind. That's the last question in your notes. Does God change his mind? If if he had this way of salvation in the Old Testament, and then it changed with Jesus Christ, how he deals with us changed. Does God change his mind? It's a good question, don't you think? Is it possible for God to change his mind? Does anybody want to throw up a hand? Yeah, Bruce. Do you guys see that? That's genius. Give Bruce a hand. What he's saying, I think I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about that a lot. It's this idea that in the Old Testament, people by faith were looking forward to the coming salvation. They were looking forward to the Messiah. There's lots of verses in the Old Testament that talk about the coming of the Messiah. So their faith was placed in God for their salvation, not in sacrificing goats and sheep and, and cattle, but in this coming Messiah, and I'll talk. I think I'll talk about that next week. That's really cool. But this idea: Does God change His mind? Let me give you a verse. You could turn there if you want. It's First Samuel fifteen twenty nine. We were almost just right there. If you still have your finger in there, First uh, 1 Samuel first 1, uh, 1 Samuel fifteen twenty nine says, "He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change His mind, for he is not a man that he should change His mind." So it says that God doesn't change his mind, right? But then we have another passage, Exodus 32. Exodus 32, uh, specifically, 14. And the story behind Exodus 32 is that Moses goes up to that mountain, Mountain Sinai, the mountain that we talked about in, in, as we began Sunday school. Moses goes up to the mountain. He receives the Ten Commandments from God. He comes back down to find the people. Worshiping a golden calf, Dumb. I mean, talk about all the dumb things you could do. Uh, Moses is up receiving word from God himself, and you're back down building a piece of gold and worshiping it. Duh, hello. I don't know. I mean, that's just what they did. And so God said he was going to destroy them. And it, it says that. God says he's going to destroy these people. But then Moses prays to God, and then the passage says, in verse 14, it says, Then the Lord relented. Other translations say the Lord changed his mind and did not bring upon his bring upon his people the disaster that he had threatened. It's the exact same Hebrew word as in Exodus 32, 14, when it says God changed his mind, as uh, the first Samuel passage that says God does not change his mind. Same exact Hebrew word. Everybody say, that's a little weird. I think it is. Yeah, I think it's a little weird too. Here's how I understand it. Because I, um, I, I like to say that God changes his mind. But it's very important that when I say, changes his mind, I use the quotation things. Changes his mind. Because we think of changing our mind in very different ways. Yesterday, I was at Home Depot getting one of those hot dogs. And the whole wide, hold me and my wife go to get Home Depot hot dogs sometimes. Um, It's a nice date. (laughs) Just kidding. We have good dates too, right? Sometimes. So yesterday, we were going to Home Depot and getting some hot dogs at the Home Depot hot dog guy who happened to be Phil Kneipe, the mill intern. He sells hot dogs there. He's a pretty cool guy. But the whole ride there, I was thinking about the white Polish sausage bratwurst. But right when I was about to make my decision and tell Phil that I wanted the white Polish sausage bratwurst, he said, you should try the spicy one. So I changed my mind, and I got the red spicy hot bratwurst. But it was a bad choice, because I don't really like spicy food. So then I was eating this bratwurst that I didn't even like. It was too spicy and then I wanted to change my mind again and get the white Polish sausage bratwurst. So I changed my mind because I didn't know everything there is to know about those bratwursts. Do you see it? I I had to change my mind because I was silly. I got Phil talked up the spicy bratwurst and so I got the spicy bratwurst. I changed my mind because I was silly because I didn't know everything there is to know about the spicy bratwurst. But. Does God know everything there is to know about everything? Yes, he does. It's called, the theological term is called omniscient. He knows everything, everything. And so God knew, God God wouldn't have ordered the, the spicy hot dog if he didn't like the spicy hot dog. He would have known that it would have been too spicy for him. However, God, I mean, there's nothing too spicy for God. He created it. So there's no reason for God to change his mind. Do you see it? It's a different way of thinking about it. We change our mind because we make silly decisions and have to change our mind because we don't know everything. I think God, and I have to use the quotations when I say change his mind because I don't know if it should be worded in the way that's changing his mind. But I think whenever we see God changing his mind, it's in the form of relenting. That God says, I'm going to kill all these people because they've made me mad. But then Moses gets down on his knees and prays, and then God changes his mind towards the side of grace and says, okay, I will show grace. And in the, in the book of Jonah, there is an example of God going to kill the Ninevites. And Jonah prays and Jonah witnesses to all the city of Nineveh that God says he's going to destroy. And then you know what it says? It says that God relented. He changes his mind and does not kill all of Nineveh because people asked him to. Let me end with this story real quick. I was... Um, um, I guess let me, let me start it off with, have you ever um, got on somebody's bad side <laughs> and never ever been able, even if you've tried, ever been able to get on their good side? I remember a job I had when I was in high school and I went to high school in Germany which is kind of weird but my dad was in the Air Force so it was an American Air Force base, American um, high school just everybody around me was American, it was like this American island inside of Germany. And so during the summertime, every single high school kid wants to get a job, right? To get some money together, unless they have to go to summer school. Um, so I wanted to have a summer job. But you can't just go out into Germany and say, start looking for jobs, because you're not a German citizen. So you had to go through the summer hire program at the Air Force Base. And it's it's weird, I don't know how they got away with this, but back in my day, um, the minimum wage was like $5. Five cents or something like that. What's it now? It's six, really? Wow, that's a lot of money. Um, um, <laughs> it was like five bucks, five fifty maybe back then. Some reason, somehow, they were the government was able to pay all these high school kids three twenty-five per hour. But it was the only job that was available, so we just we complained about getting slave wages. But then every single one of us were dying to get these jobs because it was the only job to get. And I got the job of. Um, They were going to clean out this warehouse, strip it, and then do construction in there. Uh, Strip it full of, like, there's just junk in there, like desks and uh, chairs and just trash in this old warehouse. And our job, there was like five of us, was to get all this trash out of there. It was going to take, like, the whole summer. It was chock full of just junk that had been stored up in this old warehouse. And so we are instructed to throw everything away. And we are instructed, you have to throw it away. You can't keep any of it because of the government taxes things. They can't just give out stuff. Um, you just, just have to throw it away. That's our job. Throw away this stuff. But I found this really sweet chair that I liked. And as a high schooler, um, you know how you think weird things are cool? It was like this leather, wooden, cool desk chair. And I was like man, I really want that thing. And so I took it and I knew I was supposed to throw it away, but I took it and I put it over by my car so that I could take it home. It was stealing. I wasn't supposed to do it. I didn't know that that was my first week on the job. I didn't know that the boss's office overlooked the warehouse in my car. So when he looked out his window and saw me taking a chair to my car, he he went down, pulled me aside, and said, hey, Joe, what were you doing over there by your car? And I I said, uh, I know I'm supposed to throw this stuff away, but I really like that chair. He said, I told you specifically you can't have anything. Why'd you take it? And I said, I don't know. I just wanted it. And, and so he... He said, okay, well, why don't you just go home for the day because he was pretty mad. So I went home for the day, but I was still able to keep my job working for the warehouse even though I had messed up and tried to steal this chair, which I didn't even end up stealing. Um, And it was just, I got on his bad side. The first week of work, I was on his bad side because I had done something dumb. And so the whole summer, he would come up to me and say things like, "Uh, Joe, are you doing okay? I noticed you took a couple extra minutes on your lunch break. And he wasn't going, he wasn't telling anybody else that. He had it in for me because my first experience with him, he caught me stealing this chair. And he didn't change his mind about me the entire summer, even though I wanted to impress him, even though I wanted to get, be, I mean, I was a good kid. I just wanted this chair that I was going to throw away. In my mind it wasn't that big of a deal. But it was, and it was to him, and it was stealing. I shouldn't have done it, and I couldn't get on his good side. Well, ladies and gentlemen, our God continually gives us new chances He changes his mind about us. Even though we mess up and and we mess up bad sometimes and we sin and maybe we don't even deserve a second chance, he gives us a second chance through Jesus Christ. He changes his mind about us to give us grace. That's just kind of how he works. There's this song by U2. It's called Grace. Have you heard of it? There's a line. Nobody's heard of it. It's a cool song. It's called Grace. And um, in the song, there's a line that says, Grace travels outside of karma. And karma, as some of you know, if you study Eastern religion, uh, Eastern like Buddhist religions say that if you do good things on this earth, good things will happen to you. But if you do bad things on this earth and you're a bad boy, then bad things are gonna happen to you because you're bad and it's karma coming around. But our God is God of grace, not of karma. And grace travels outside of karma and says that even though you're bad and you're doing wrong things and you're displeasing God and you can't be perfect, He pulls you out of that and shows you grace. He sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross to fulfill the Old Testament. It fulfills the Old Testament. It completes the Old Testament. It's not as if God just changes his mind and says, okay, I'm going to throw down a new promise. No, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment, the completion of the Old Testament and the Old Testament promise. That's the way our God works. Would you stand up and pray with me? God, we just, we open our hearts, we open our minds to you right now, Jesus, and we thank you for the book of Hebrews. God, we thank you that you are a God that in some way changes your mind about us, that you relent and show us mercy, you show us grace when we don't deserve grace, when we don't deserve mercy. We are not perfect beings, God, but you are. And you said, but by your work on the cross your sacrifice on the cross that we are made perfect by knowing you by believing in you and that's such a greater promise than the promise that's in the Old Testament with animals and their blood that your blood Jesus is so much more powerful than any animal because you covered once and for all all of our sins and all we need to do is accept that into our hearts and into our lives and so Jesus we just do that right now on a new, on a more complete level, God, right now we just say to you, we accept what you did on the cross, your sacrifice for our sins. We praise you. We thank you this morning. And everybody said, amen. Amen.